Section 6 of Animal Heroes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cooper Leith. Animal Heroes by Ernest Thompson Seaton. Badlands Billy, the Wolf That Won. Chapter 1 the howl by night. Do you know the three calls of the hunting wolf? The long, drawn, deep howl? The muster that tells of game discovered but too strong for the finder to manage alone? And the higher ululation that ringing and swelling is the cry of the pack on a hot scent? And the sharp bark, coupled with a short howl, that, seeming least of all, is yet a gong of doom, for this is the cry, close in, this is the finish. We were riding the Badland Buttes, King and I, with a pack of various hunting dogs stringing behind or trotting alongside. The sun had gone from the sky, and a blood streak marked the spot where he died, away over Sentinel Butte. The hills were dim, the valley's dark, when from the nearest gloom there rolled a long-drawn cry that all men recognize instinctively, melodious, yet with a tone in it that sends a shudder up the spine, though now it has lost all menace for mankind. We listened for a moment. It was the wolf-hunter who broke the silence. That's Badlands Billy. Ain't it a voice? He's out for his beef tonight. Chapter 2 Ancient Days In pristine days, the buffalo herds were followed by bands of wolves that preyed upon the sick, the weak, and the wounded. When the buffalo were exterminated, the wolves were hard put for support. But the cattle came and solved the question for them by taking the buffalo's place. This caused the wolf war. The ranchmen offered a bounty for each wolf killed, and every cowboy out of work was supplied with traps and poison for wolf killing. The very expert made this their sole business and became known as wolvers. King Ryder was one of these. He was a quiet, gentle-spoken fellow, with a keen eye and insight into animal life that gave him a special power over broncos and dogs, as well as wolves and bears, though in the last two cases it was power merely to surmise where they were and how best to get at them. He had been a wolver for years, and surprised me greatly by saying that Never in all his experience had he known a gray wolf to attack a human being. We had many campfire talks while the other men were sleeping, and then it was I learned the little that he knew about Badlands Billy. Six times I've seen him, and the seventh will be Sunday, you bet. He takes his long rest then. And thus on the very ground where it all fell out, to the noise of the night wind and the yapping of the coyote, interrupted some time by the deep-drawn howl of the hero himself, 
I heard the chapters of this history, which, with others gleaned in many fields, gave me the story of the big, dark wolf of Sentinel Butte. Chapter 3 In the Canyon Away back in the spring of 92, a wolver was wolving on the east side of the Sentinel Mountain that so long was a principal landmark of the old plainsman. Pelts were not good in May, but the bounties were high, five dollars a head, and double for she-wolves. As he went down to the creek one morning, he saw a wolf coming to drink on the other side. He had an easy shot, and on killing it, found it was a nursing she-wolf. Evidently, her family were somewhere nearby, so he spent two or three days searching in all the likely places, but found no clue of the den. Two weeks afterward, as the wolver rode down an adjoining canyon, he saw a wolf come out of a hole. The ever-ready rifle flew up, and another ten-dollar scalp was added to his string. Now he dug into the den and found the litter, a most surprising one indeed, for it consisted not of the usual five or six wolf pups, but of eleven, and these, strange to say, were of two sizes, five of them larger and older than the other six. Here were two distinct families with one mother. As he added the scalps to his string of trophies, the truth dawned on the hunter. One lot was surely the family of the she-wolf he had killed two weeks before. The case was clear. The little ones awaiting the mother that was never to come had whined piteously and more loudly as their hunger pangs increased. The other mother passing had heard the cubs. Her heart was tender now. Her own little ones had so recently come and she cared for the orphans, carried them to her own den, and was providing for the double family when the rifleman had cut the gentle chapter short. Many a wolver has dug into a wolf den to find nothing. The old wolves, or possibly the cubs themselves, often dig little side pockets and off galleries, and when an enemy is breaking in, they hide in these. The loose earth conceals the small pocket, and thus the cubs escape. When the wolver retired with his scalps, he did not know that the biggest of all the cubs was still in the den. And even had he waited for two hours, he might have been no wiser. Three hours later, the sun went down, and there was a slight scratching afar in the hole. First, two little gray paws, then a small black nose appeared in a soft sand pile to one side of the den. At length the cub came forth from his hiding. He had been frightened by the attack on the den. Now he was perplexed by its condition. It was thrice as large as it had been, and open at the top now lying near were things that smelled like his brothers and sisters, but they were repellent to him. He was filled with fear as he sniffed at them, and sneaked aside into a thicket of grass as a nighthawk boomed over his head. He crouched all night in that thicket, 
He did not dare to go near the den, and he knew not where else he could go. The next morning, when two vultures came swooping down on the bodies, the wolf cub ran off in the thicket, and seeking its deepest cover was led down a ravine to a wide valley. Suddenly there rose from the grass a big she-wolf, like his mother yet different, a stranger. And instinctively the stray cub sank to the earth as the old wolf bounded on him. No doubt the cub had been taken for some lawful prey, but a whiff set that right. She stood over him for an instant. He groveled at her feet. The impulse to kill him, or at least give him a shake, died away. He had the smell of a young cub. Her own were about his age. Her heart was touched, and when he found the courage to put his nose up and smell her nose, she made no angry demonstration, except for a short, half-hearted growl. Now, however, he had smelled something that he sorely needed. He had not fed since the day before, and when the old wolf turned to leave him, he tumbled after her unclumsy puppy legs. Had the mother wolf been far from home, he must soon have been left behind. But the nearest hollow was the chosen place, and the cub arrived at the den's mouth soon after the mother wolf. A stranger is an enemy, and the old one rushing forth to the defense met the cub again, and again was restrained by something that rose in her response to the smell. The cub had thrown himself on his back in utter submission, but that did not prevent his nose reporting to him the good thing almost within reach. The she-wolf went into the den and curled herself about her brood. The cub persisted in following. She snapped as he approached her little ones, but, disarming wrath each time by submission and his very cubhood, he was presently among her brood, helping himself to what he wanted so greatly, and thus he adopted himself into her family. In a few days, he was so much one of them that the mother forgot about his being a stranger. Yet he was different from them in several ways, older by two weeks, stronger, and marked on the neck and shoulders with what afterward grew to be a dark mane. Little Dusky Mane could not have been happier in his choice of a foster mother, for the yellow wolf was not only a good hunter with a fund of cunning, but she was a wolf of modern ideas as well. The old tricks of tolling a prairie dog, relaying for antelope, huffing a bronco, or flanking a steer, she had learned partly from instinct and partly from the example of her more experienced relatives when they joined to form the winter bands. But, just as necessary nowadays, she had learned that all men carry guns, that guns are irresistible that the only way to avoid them is by keeping out of sight while the sun is up, and yet that at night they are harmless. She had a fair comprehension of traps. Indeed, she had been in one once, and though she left a toe behind in pulling free, 
it was a toe most advantageously disposed of. Henceforth, though not comprehending the nature of the trap, she was thoroughly imbued with the horror of it, with the idea that iron is dangerous, and at any price it should be avoided. On one occasion, when she and five others were planning to raid a sheepyard, she held back at the last minute because some new strung wires appeared. The others rushed in to find the sheep beyond their reach, themselves in a death trap. Thus she had learned the new dangers, and while it is unlikely that she had any clear mental conception of them, she had acquired a wholesome distrust for all things strange, and a horror of one or two in particular that proved her lasting safeguard. Each year she raised her brood successfully, and the number of yellow wolves increased in the country. Guns, traps, men, and the new animals they brought had to be learned. But there was yet another lesson before her, a terrible one indeed. About the time Dusky Mane's brothers were a month old, his foster mother returned in a strange condition. She was frothing at the mouth, her legs trembled, and she fell in a convulsion near the doorway of the den. But recovering, she came in. Her jaws quivered. Her teeth rattled a little as she tried to lick the little ones. She seized her own front leg and bit it so as not to bite them. But at length she grew quieter and calmer. The cubs had retreated in fear to a far pocket, but now they returned and crowded around her to seek their usual food. The mother recovered, but was very ill for two or three days. In those days with the poison in her system worked disaster for the brood. They were terribly sick. Only the strongest could survive. And when the trial of strength was over, the den contained only the old one and the black mean cub, the one she had adopted. Thus, little dusky mane became her sole charge. All her strength was devoted to feeding him, and he thrived apace. Wolves are quick to learn things. The reactions of smell are the greatest that a wolf can feel. And henceforth, both cub and foster mother experienced a quick, unreasoning sense of fear and hate the moment the smell of strychnine reached them. Chapter 4 The Rudiments of Wolf Training With the sustenance of Seven at his service, the little wolf had every reason to grow, and when in the autumn he began to follow his mother on her hunting trips, he was as tall as she was. Now a change of region was forced on them, for numbers of little wolves were growing up. Sentinel Butte, the rocky fastness of the plains, was claimed by many that were big and strong. The weaker must move out, and with them Yellow Wolf and the Dusky Cub. Wolves have no language in the sense that man has. Their vocabulary is probably limited to a dozen howls, barks, and grunts 
expressing the simplest emotions. But they have several other modes of conveying ideas, and one very special method of spreading information, the wolf telephone. Scattered over their range are a number of recognized centrals. Sometimes these are stones, sometimes the angle of cross trails, sometimes a buffalo skull. Indeed, any conspicuous object near a main trail is used. A wolf calling here, as a dog does at a telegraph post or a muskrat at a certain mud pie point, leaves his body scent and learns what other visitors have been there recently to do the same. He learns also whence they came and where they went, as well as something about their condition, whether hunted, hungry, gored, or sick. By this system of registration, a wolf knows where his friends, as well as his foes, are to be found. And Dusky Mane, following after the yellow wolf, was taught the places and uses of the many signal stations, without any conscious attempt at teaching on the part of his foster mother. Example, backed by his native instincts, was indeed the chief teacher. But on one occasion, at least, there was something very like the effort of a human parent to guard her child in danger. The dark cub had learned the rudiments of wolf life, that the way to fight dogs is to run, and to fight as you run. Never grapple, but snap, 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 and make for the rough country where horses cannot bring their riders. He learned not to bother about the coyotes that follow for the pickings when you hunt, you cannot catch them, and they do you no harm. He knew he must not waste time dashing after birds that alight on the ground, and that he must keep away from the little black-and-white animal with the bushy tail. It is not very good to eat, and it is very, very bad to smell. Poison. Oh, he never forgot that smell from the day when the den was cleared of all his foster brothers. He now knew that the first move in attacking a sheep was to scatter them. A lone sheep is foolish and easy prey. That the way to round up a band of cattle was to frighten a calf. He learned that he must always attack a steer behind, a sheep in front, and a horse in the middle, that is, on the flank. And never, never attack a man at all. Never even face him. But an important lesson was added to these, one in which the mother consciously taught him of a secret foe. Chapter 5. The Lesson on Traps A calf had died in branding time, and now, two weeks later, was in its best state for perfect taste, not too fresh, not overripe, that is, in a wolf's opinion, and the wind carried this information from afar. The yellow wolf and dusky mane were out for supper, though not yet knowing where, when the tidings of veal arrived, and they trotted up the wind. The calf was in an open place, and plain to be seen in the moonlight. A dog would have trotted right up to the carcass. An old-time wolf might have done so 
but constant war had developed constant vigilance in the yellow wolf, and trusting nothing and no one but her nose, she slacked her speed to a walk. On coming in easy view, she stopped, and for long swung her nose, submitting the wind to the closest possible chemical analysis. She tried it with her finest tests, and blew all the membranes clean and tried it once more. And this was the report of the trusty nostrils. Yes, the unanimous report. First, rich and racy smell of calf, 70%. Smells of grass, bugs, wood, flowers, trees, sand, and other uninteresting negations, 15%. Smell of her cub and herself, positive but ignorable, 10%. Smell of human tracks, 2%. Smell of smoke, 1% of sweaty leather smell, 1%, of human scent, not discernible in some samples, one half percent smell of iron, a trace. The old wolf crouched a little, but sniffed hard with swinging nose. The young wolf imitatively did the same. She backed off to a greater distance, the cub stood. She gave a low whine. He followed unwillingly. She circled around the tempting carcass. A new smell was recorded. Coyote trail scent. Soon followed by coyote body scent. Yes, they were there sneaking along the ridge. And now, as she passed to one side, the samples changed. The wind had lost nearly every trace of calf. Miscellaneous, commonplace, and uninteresting smells were there instead. The human track scent was as before. The trace of leather was gone. But fully one-half percent of iron odor. And body smell of man raised to nearly two percent. Fully alarmed, she conveyed her fear to her cub by her rigid pose, her air intent, and her slightly bristling mane. She continued her round. At one time, on a high place, the human body scent was doubly strong. Then as she dropped, it faded. Then, the wind brought the full calf odor with several track scents of coyotes and sundry birds. Her suspicions were lulling, as, in a smalling circle, she neared the tempting feast from the windward side. She had even advanced straight toward it for a few steps, when the sweaty leather sang loud and strong again, and smoke and iron mingled like two strands of a party-colored yarn. Centering all her attention on this, she advanced within two leaps of the calf. There on the ground was a scrap of leather, telling also of human touch. Close at hand, the calf. And now, 
The iron and smoke on the full, vast smell of calf were like a snake trail across the trail of a whole beef herd. It was so slight that the cub, with the appetite and impatience of youth, pressed up against his mother's shoulder to go past and eat without delay. She seized him by the neck and flung him back. A stone, struck by his feet, rolled forward and stopped with a peculiar clink. The danger smell was greatly increased at this, and the yellow wolf backed slowly from the feast, the cub unwillingly following. As he looked wistfully, he saw the coyotes drawing nearer, mindful chiefly to avoid the wolves. He watched their really cautious advance. It seemed like heedless rushing compared with his mother's approach. The calf smell rolled forth in exquisite and overpowering excellence now, for they were tearing the meat, when a sharp clank was heard and a yelp from a coyote. At the same time, the quiet night was shocked with a roar and a flash of fire. Heavy shots spattered calf and coyotes, and yelping like beaten dogs, they were scattered, except the one that was killed, and a second struggling in the trap set here by the ever-active wolvers. The air was charged with hateful smells redoubled now, and horrid smells additional. The yellow wolf glided down a hollow and led her cub away in flight. But as they went, they saw a man rush from the near bank, where the mother's nose had warned her of the human scent, and saw him kill the coyote and set the traps for more. Chapter 6 The Beguiling of the Yellow Wolf The life game is a hard game for we may win ten thousand times, and yet if we fail but once, our gain is gone. How many hundred times had the yellow wolf scorned the traps? How many cubs had she trained to do the same? Of all the dangers to her life, she best knew traps. October had come. The cub was now much taller than the mother. The wolver had seen them once, a yellow wolf followed by another, whose long awkward legs, big soft feet, thin neck and skimpy tail, proclaimed him for this year's cub. The record of the dust and sand said that the old one had lost a right front toe, and that the young one was of giant size. It was the wolver that thought to turn the carcass of the calf to profit but he was disappointed in getting coyotes instead of wolves. It was the beginning of the trapping season. For this month, fur is prime. A young trapper often fastens the bait to the trap. An experienced one does not. A good trapper will even put the bait at one place and the trap ten or twenty feet away, but at a spot that the wolf is likely to cross in circling. A favorite plan is to hide three or four traps around an open place and scatter some scraps of meat in the middle. The traps are buried out of sight after being smoked to hide the taint of hands and iron. 
Sometimes no bait is used except a small piece of cotton or a tuft of feathers that may catch the wolf's eye or pique its curiosity and tempt it to circle on the fateful treacherous ground. A good trapper varies his methods continually, so the wolves cannot learn his ways. Their only safeguards are perpetual vigilance and distrust of all smells that are known to be of man. The wolver, with a load of the strongest steel traps, had begun his autumn work on the cottonwood. An old buffalo trail crossing the river followed a little draw that climbed the hills to the level upland. All the animals used these trails, wolves and foxes as well as cattle and deer. They are the main thoroughfares. A cottonwood stump not far from where it plunged to the gravelly stream was marked with wolf signs that told the wolver of its use. Here was an excellent place for traps, not on the trail, for cattle were here in numbers, but twenty yards away on a level sandy spot he set four traps in a twelve-foot square. Near each he scattered two or three scraps of meat. Three or four white feathers on a spear of grass in the middle completed the setting. No human eye, few animal noses, could have detected the hidden danger of that sandy ground, when the sun and wind and the sand itself had dissipated the man-track taint. The yellow wolf had seen and passed, and taught her giant son to pass such traps a thousand times before. The cattle came to water in the heat of the day. They strung down the buffalo path as once the buffalo did. The little vesper birds flitted before them, and cowbirds rode on them, and the prairie dogs chattered at them just as they once did at the buffalo. Down from the gray-green mesa, with its green-gray rocks, they marched with imposing solemnity, importance, and directness of purpose. Some frolics and calves playing alongside the trail, grew sober and walked behind their mothers as the river flat was reached. The old cow that headed the procession sniffed suspiciously as she passed the trap set. But it was far away. Otherwise, she would have pawed and bellowed over the scraps of bloody beef till every trap was sprung and harmless. But she led to the river. After all had drunk their fill, they lay down on the nearest bank till late afternoon. Then their unheard dinner gong aroused them and started them on the backward march to where the richest pastures grew. One or two small birds had picked at the scraps of meat. Some bluebottle flies buzzed about, but the sinking sun saw the sandy mask untouched. A brown marsh hawk came skimming over the river flat as the sun began his color play. Blackbirds dashed into thickets and easily avoided his clumsy pounce. It was too early for the mice, but as he skimmed the ground, his keen eye caught the flutter of feathers by the trap and turned his flight. The feathers, in their uninteresting emptiness, were exposed before he was near. But now he saw the scraps of meat. 
guileless of cunning, he alighted and was devouring the second lump when clank. The dust was flirted high and the marsh hawk was held by his toes, struggling vainly in the jaws of a powerful wolf trap. He was not much hurt. His ample wings winnowed from time to time in efforts to be free, but he was helpless, even as a sparrow might be in a rat trap. And when the sun had played his fierce chromatic scale, his swan song sung, and died as he dies only in the blazing west, and the shades had fallen on the melodramatic scene of the mouse in the elephant trap. There was a deep, rich sound on the flat butte, answered by another, neither very long, neither repeated, both instinctive rather than necessary. One was the muster call of an ordinary wolf, the other the answer of a very big male, not a pair in this case, but mother and son, yellow wolf and dusky mane. They came trotting together down the buffalo trail. They paused at the telephone box on the hill, and again at the old cottonwood route, and were making for the river when the hawk in the trap fluttered its wings. The old wolf turned toward him, a wounded bird on the ground, surely, and she rushed forward. Sun and sand soon burnt all trail scents. There was nothing to warn her. She sprang on the flopping bird, and a chop of her jaws ended his troubles. But a horrid sound. The gritting of her teeth on steel told of the peril. She dropped the hawk and sprang backward from the dangerous ground, but landed in the second trap. High on her foot its death grip closed, and leaping with all her strength to escape, she set her forefoot in another of the lurking grips of steel. Never had a trap been so baited before. Never was she so unsuspicious. Never was catch more sure. Fear and fury filled the old wolf's heart. She tugged and strained. She chewed the chains. She snarled and foamed. One trap, with its buried log, she might have dragged. With two, she was helpless. Struggle as she might, it only worked those relentless jaws more deeply into her feet. She snapped wildly at the air. She tore the dead hawk into shreds. She roared the short, barking roar of a crazy wolf. She bit at the traps, at her cub, at herself. She tore her legs that were held. She gnawed in a frenzy at her flank. She chopped off her tail in her madness. She splintered all her teeth on the steel and filled her bleeding, foaming jaws with clay and sand. She struggled till she fell and writhed about or lay like dead, till strong enough to rise and grind the chains against her teeth. And so the night passed by. And Dusky Mane? Where was he? The feeling of the time when his foster mother had come home poisoned 
now returned, but he was even more afraid of her. She seemed filled with fighting hate. He held away and whined a little. He slunk off and came back when she lay still, only to retreat again as she sprang forward raging at him and then renewed her efforts on the traps. He did not understand it, but he knew this much. She was in terrible trouble, and the cause seemed to be the same as that which scared them the night they had ventured near the calf. Dusky Mane hung about all night, fearing to go near, not knowing what to do, and helpless as his mother. At dawn the next day, a shepherder seeking lost sheep discovered her from a neighboring hill. A signal mirror called the wolfer from his camp. Duskymane saw the new danger. He was a mere cub, though tall. He could not face the man, and fled at his approach. The wolver rode up to the sorry, tattered, bleeding she-wolf in the trap. He raised his rifle, and soon the struggling stopped. The wolver read the trail and the signs about, and remembering those he had read before, he divined that this was the wolf with the great cub, the she-wolf of Sentinel Butte. Duskymane heard the crack as he scurried off into cover. He could scarcely know what it meant, but he never saw his kind old foster mother again. Henceforth, he must face the world alone. End of section 6 Recording by Cooper Leith.